Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Alexandra Hall-Hall, the undiplomatic diplomat. Alexandra was Britain's ambassador to Georgia and later lead envoy for Brexit at the British Embassy in Washington. But she quit that job in 2019 in protest at having to be the bearer of messages that she says were untrue. We'll hear Alex's account of that and why she thinks Brexit is only half the story. Democracy itself is at risk, she warns, not only in the UK, but in the Western world generally as well. Alex is also the co-host of the Disorder podcast. We'll find out more about that as well as we go through. Before any of that, though, just a quick reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That is our brilliant monthly newspaper, and it combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. So do head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription to support some wonderful journalism and support this podcast as well. That's over at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, thank you very much indeed. Alex, welcome then. And let's start at the start for you, which I think in terms of most people's perceptions anyway, is... 2019, your decision to quit as lead envoy in Washington. Tell us how you came to be in that position and why you decided to leave it. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be here with you, Adrian. So I was living in Washington, having finished my posting in Tbilisi, and I was taking a career break and working at a think tank called the Atlantic Council while the British government under Theresa May was trying to work out how the UK could leave the EU. And from that position in the think tank, I was observing that the UK was doing an absolutely dreadful job of explaining why Brexit was so difficult and what it was trying to achieve. And a lot of my colleagues at the Atlantic Council and other think tanks across Washington were pretty sceptical about why on earth the UK had voted to leave the EU. But they all thought, okay, the UK is a sensible country. You're a mature democracy. I'm sure you have a plan. And what became obvious in the first two years after the referendum is that we didn't have a plan and that we weren't handling it very sensibly. And I had this idea that perhaps if I went back into the foreign office and could persuade the embassy in Washington to create a position to be a kind of full-time spokesperson on Brexit, that once I was back in government, I would get to see the papers that weren't for public consumption and I would understand what was going on. And then I would be able to use my brilliant communication skills and very good connections with Americans. I've lived and worked here for many, many years. And I thought I would be able to explain it in a coherent way once I had a better understanding of what was going on. And I was very lucky and that the embassy in Washington had reached the same conclusion that they really needed to ramp up an effort to engage Americans who were very concerned about the apparent chaos they were witnessing between their longtime ally, the UK, and their friends to the European Union. And so they were keen to find someone. And I seemed to be the right person at the right time. And it was a kind of loyalty and patriotism. Now, of course, everyone now knows that I didn't personally, privately support Brexit. 
but I never let that get in the way of me actually doing the job as a professional. And it wasn't that I thought Brexit was immoral or illegal. It was a perfectly legitimate decision to take to leave the EU. What led me to the point of resignation was how Brexit was delivered, not the fact of Brexit per se. So in private, you were anti-Brexit, but you had this background in the diplomatic service, felt that you had something to offer to your country. So the fact that you were personally opposed to Brexit didn't stand in the way of offering your services. And you felt that if you were inside the machine, as it were, you would be able to better understand the motivations for Brexit and therefore be able to communicate that to our rather bewildered ally. That's exactly right. And again, it's really important for me to sort of convince listeners that it is possible to act in an impartial professional way. There has been so much attack on the civil service in the last five years as the blob or a sort of hotbed of Ramonas who were determined to thwart Brexit. And the truth is 100% different. The day after the referendum result, I was still ambassador in Georgia. And the message I gave to my team in the embassy is it's our duty to help the government deliver Brexit. And it is our job to reassure the Georgians that we remain committed to our bilateral relationship with Georgia and the UK will continue to be a European nation. And a few weeks later, I flew back to the foreign office where there was a conference for ambassadors from all around the world. And our permanent undersecretary, Simon MacDonald, who has come under a lot of personal criticism since Brexit himself, was also absolutely crystal clear to everybody there. He said, it is our job to advise the government on how to deliver Brexit and help explain it and help negotiate it. And you absolutely, nobody, I'm not going to ask how people voted, but you cannot let any personal concerns get in the way of that. And of course, it was a very unprecedented situation. I mean, this was something that was going on in our own country. So him acknowledging that people might have different personal views is because this was a policy matter that was affecting all of us in our own country. As diplomats, we're usually working on things that take place in other countries. This was something that was going on in our own country. And he's been accused of making a mistake by letting staff know that he personally had voted to leave. But what he was actually trying to do is to say, look, all of us have a job to do and it is to help the government. So yes, when we were in the US, it was my job to help explain it and help explain government policy to Americans. So as someone with a background as a professional diplomat, going back to that work again to sell the virtues and explain the virtues of Brexit to the United States. What was it that made you so disenchanted that you became this very undiplomatic diplomat? Diplomat known grata these days. <laughs> there were three main areas. And the turning point for me was when Boris Johnson became prime minister. As long as Theresa May was prime minister, there seemed to be a basic adherence to the norms and conventions of political life. She continued to engage in a respectful way with European partners, cooperate with them on international issues while we were still part of the EU before we had left. 
She was always fairly respectful to her colleagues in the House of Commons, and she was trying to navigate a deal that satisfied the result of the referendum to leave the EU, but to do so in a way that took into account the concerns of businesses or people who were opposed to leaving or worried about the implications. And she was, you know, she failed because she had extreme hard levers on the right of her party who were not willing to accept any compromise except the hardest form of Brexit. And after she made the disastrous decision to hold an election, she was dependent on a very small fringe in her party. But she still tried to preserve the niceties of our political system. What changed for me when Boris Johnson became prime minister, immediately three things happened. First, he tried to prorogue parliament, a decision that was found to be unlawful and as a naked attempt to try and suppress Parliament's ability to hold his government to account and scrutinise his approach towards negotiations. Secondly, the lines to take that were sent out to civil servants and to diplomats around the world became nakedly political. For example, they would include lines requiring us to criticise the Labour Party for its stance on Brexit. And that is not something that civil servants should do. And thirdly, it required us to willfully mislead on the implications of Brexit and the kind of deal that he was pursuing. It required us to gloss over the implications of a hard Brexit for the situation in Northern Ireland. And it required us to assess the concerns of business. And I actually submitted a formal complaint privately saying we are being asked to breach the civil service code, which requires us to be honest, to act with integrity and to be apolitical. And I cited examples in these lines that were clearly disingenuous, misleading, consciously. And to their credit, the Foreign Office took my concerns very seriously. They engaged in a conversation with Number 10, and a new process was put in place for all lines to diplomats to be signed off by civil servants, not political advisors. But what happened was I would then draw on those lines when I was briefing businesses, members of Congress, or other interested parties in the US. And the first question they would say to me is, well, why is your prime minister saying something different? Because the prime minister, Boris Johnson, and other ministers of his government would continue to use these very misleading lines and saying, we're going to leave without a deal, and business will be fine, and we can square the circle on Northern Ireland. And I was using these lines drafted by civil servants that were more accurate, but completely undercut by what our ministers were saying. So I had no credibility. And can you remember any of the the lines that you were asked to repeat that you felt particularly uncomfortable with? The most difficult one was Northern Ireland because the lines we gave were kind of hollow. They were assurances that, of course, we were committed to the Good Friday Agreement. Of course, there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland. But Americans helped broker the Good Friday Agreement and sponsor it. And they really understand the issues extremely well. Many of them are trade experts. And so they would say, well, how are you going to do that if you leave the single market and the customs union? And we would say, well, we will find solutions. And they will like, but what solutions? 
if you say you're opposed to a border in the Irish Sea and you're opposed to a border on the island of Ireland, how are you going to leave the single market and the customs union? And we would go back to London time and again saying, we can't just keep saying as a mantra, we're committed to no hard border. You have to explain to us how you're going to deliver it. And of course, the answer was there wasn't a solution to this conundrum. And there wasn't a solution under Theresa May. And I have some sympathy with the British situation because our ability to leave the EU and make a clean break was complicated by our responsibility to uphold the Good Friday Agreement. Other countries might have been able to leave the EU without having to grapple with that. So it was genuinely difficult. And I was able to explain to Americans, it really is difficult, but we had to be able to have answers and we didn't have them. And the other issue I found very difficult, and it really came to a head with two meetings I had with businesses. One was a firm that had just made a huge investment in the Republic of Ireland for dairy production that was dependent on milk supplies coming from Northern Ireland. And they were pressing me again and again and again, how are you going to keep that border open? This business model depended upon smooth movement of goods from mainland England, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and the whole business model also depended on then being able to trade friction-free into the EU. And the head of this company, who had just invested millions and millions and millions, kept on pressing me, saying, but how are you going to do that if you leave the single market and the customs union? And the lines to take we had, I can't remember now, chapter and verse. They were sort of bland assurances. There'll be no friction. There'll be no barriers. And that's just not true. We might have been able to negotiate, as we did, a free trade deal with zero tariffs, but of course there were going to be customs checks. That is what leaving the single market meant. And then I had another meeting with a huge pharmaceutical company with headquarters in Washington that had a huge outfit in London. And again, their business model depended on free trade between the UK and the EU and medical supplies being compliant with European standards and British standards and a similar sort of thing. And I remember... I had developed quite a confident patter. I mean, I was a sort of patriot. I was trying to explain what our government was doing. And I was talking to people who really know their stuff. And they were asking me questions and I was able to reply, but it was so obvious they weren't convinced because they're real experts. And there was this arrogance. The lines to take that we were being sent were drafted for a British domestic audience many of whom are not familiar with or understand trade policy. They weren't lines that you could use with trade policy experts to top class businesses with headquarters and operations across the EU. So there was a kind of a patronising tone to the lines we're being asked to deliver as well. Boris Johnson famously said there would be no border in the Irish Sea. He said, over my dead body, he's still alive. There was a de facto border in the Irish Sea that has been moderated somewhat by the Windsor framework negotiated by Rishi Sunak. But nevertheless, that division between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in trade terms 
continues. Yes, and Boris Johnson lied. It wasn't just that we were being asked to tell lies to our allies, but we were lying to our own people and we were lying to the people in Northern Ireland who most cared about this and who are most affected. If I was the DUP, I would be livid with Boris Johnson, who swore to them there would be no barriers. He sold the deal on a lie. Was there, in amongst this, one particular moment then that led you to say, that's it, I've had enough? Well, the brinkmanship over no deal, I think, was the final last straw for me because it was playing so fast and loose with people's livelihoods. And at the time, there was a bill that had passed in the House of Commons, making it effectively impossible for the UK to leave without a deal and binding the government's hands. And members of the government and Boris Johnson himself were absolutely apoplectic about this, saying they would not adhere to that bill. I think it was the Hillary Benn legislation and saying they absolutely were ready to leave without a deal. And this deadline of October the 31st was approaching. I want to explain something else that was going on. Every time from under Theresa May to Boris Johnson, there were successive deadlines we were reaching when we were about to leave without no deal unless the EU extended the deadline. Every time that happened, the entire British embassy went into emergency mode And we had emergency planning in the embassy that was akin to the kind of emergency planning we do for a major terrorist attack or a major natural disaster. We would have emergency phones. We had rosters for people to work through the night. We had sort of gold, silver and bronze command leaders because everybody was rigging, saying, what happens? Can we still fly to the UK? Will planes still be able to operate? Can we still take our pets? Will our scholarships still be valid? Will our visas be valid? Will we still be able to go between the UK and the rest of Europe? Businesses were saying, what's the plan? What if we can't trade? Will the borders be jammed? Will the customs be jammed? So masses of man hours were being spent on this kind of planning every time. And October the 31st was the final last time the deadline got extended. And right up to the hours before Boris Johnson finally caved and conceded and sent a letter to the EU agreeing to a further extension, we didn't know if we were about to go over a cliff edge. Now, that is extremely debilitating. Other problems are going on in the world. Other issues were needing to be addressed. And I was responsible for coordinating these emergency responses, and it was just incredibly dispiriting. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. And then an election was called for December, and I felt, if the current government wins, nothing is going to change. We're going to continue to get these misleading lines. On the other hand, I thought, if I resign after the government has won, it's such a nakedly political act, like British civil servant resigns because she doesn't like the result of the outcome, that I decided I must leave before the election. And to be fair, I have to say that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was also pretty misleading on Brexit as well, was also promising a fairly sort of cakeist approach that they would deliver Brexit better, but also without any explanation of how they would do it better. So I just felt there's unlikely to be any improvement after the election. 
but I have to go out before so it doesn't look like I'm reacting to that election. So I resigned a week before the election. We now have a situation in which the two major political parties in England are committed to continuing with Brexit. Clearly, the Conservative Party are, but Labour also shows no appetite for rejoining the European Union anytime soon. Even the Liberal Democrats have weakened their opposition. So where do you think Brexit has left us? If you were a diplomat now, do you think that you could at least put a position to foreign governments, which is explainable, which makes sense of where we are now? No, I can't. Again, it's not because leaving the EU per se is a wrong thing to do. It's about how we have done it in a way that is so dishonest. We have never fully leveled either with our own people or with our partners and accepted the consequences of leaving the EU. And as long as you are still glossing over some of the impacts of Brexit, most obviously in terms of trade, because there are now meaningfully more obstacles to trade with our biggest partner, you cannot sell a narrative because you are basing that narrative on a fundamental misrepresentation of what we have just done. So I think that is always going to be a problem. And I do understand why nobody wants to go back into the sort of divisive, endless debates about Brexit and the terms of our future relationship with the EU. I understand why the Labour Party doesn't want to dredge that debate up. And I also think even if we could magically reverse the decision overnight and return to the EU, it wouldn't solve all the UK's problems, because actually the solution to a lot of the UK's challenges right now never had anything to do with the EU. And leaving the EU was not the solution to them, and rejoining them is not the solution either. However, as long as you don't address the elephant in that room, you are going to be trying to tackle the UK's problems with one hand tied behind your back. Brexit isn't the cause of all our economic woes, but it certainly made them all a lot harder to deal with. So that is what I find very disappointing. There is a continued failure to really come clean about the implications of Brexit. Once you've come clean about it, you can say, fine, this is the reality of where we are, but these are the things we can try and do on foreign policy, we can act a little bit more nimbly. We'll, of course, continue to cooperate with our European partners, but we can act in a slightly different way. But we're still trying to gloss over a lot of the implications. And that fundamental lack of honesty has become entrenched in our political system. And that is very poisonous and toxic. And you think Brexit is a symptom of a wider problem with democracy in the UK, and in the West generally. Explain why. Brexit is both a symptom and a cause. Um, as I was saying before, Brexit has now made everything far worse. And it has sort of increased the toxicity of our system. But Brexit really exposed for me some of the flaws in the system. And this is what I'm now spending so much of my time on. And I'm a member of a commission looking at the structures of our political system. What it really exposed 
is that our system has relied too long on this notion of the good chap theory of government, that governments will respect certain norms and conventions, they will treat the opposition with respect, they will tell the truth to parliament, they will sort of behave in a decent way. And what we actually had and witnessed was completely the opposite of that. We had a government arrogating to itself the results of an advisory referendum unilaterally deciding for itself what kind of Brexit that meant, failing to take into account the views of fairly important constituent parts of our union, like Scotland and Northern Ireland, which voted to stay in the EU, deriding members of the judiciary as enemies of the people when they insisted on certain parliamentary rights of scrutiny, trying to prorogue parliament, when Parliament tried to hold our system to account, lying to our head of state when trying to prorogue Parliament. And the more I looked, the more I realised that our system actually has no guardrails whatsoever when we have a prime minister determined to abuse their powers to the full. We have a head of state who, by virtue of being an unelected monarch, has absolutely no ability to hold the executive to account. We have an unelected upper chamber, the House of Lords, which by virtue of being unelected cannot ultimately override the House of Commons and indeed is a source of patronage for the government of the day. We have a ministerial code which is not binding. We have an independent advisor for ethics in government who is appointed by the Prime Minister and reports to the Prime Minister. We have a first-past-the-post system that results in a winner-takes-all that has led in successive parliaments elected with less than 40% of the vote. We have no written constitution to act as a guardrail. We have no Supreme Court or constitutional council that can assess government actions according to certain standards. So Everywhere you look, some of the checks and balances that exist in other Western democracies absolutely don't exist in the UK. And the good chaps theory no longer works. And we had a government that weaponized Brexit and abused its powers and exposed just how fragile our political system is. And it has gone way beyond Brexit. The government in the last two years has passed laws curtailing the rights of public protest. They have passed laws curtailing the ability of judges to conduct judicial review of certain acts of the government. The government has made excessive use of so-called Henry VIII powers, which means that they pass one big bit of legislation and then arrogate to themselves the ability to make changes to that legislation or update it without having to go back to parliamentary scrutiny. They introduced new requirements for voter ID, which Jacob Rees-Mogg himself openly admitted was an attempt to facilitate conservative voters and make it harder for people less likely to vote for the conservatives to come and vote. They have established new powers over our election commission. So this is a gradual chipping away at our freedoms. And because it's so small, it's sort of a gradual erosion, people don't really see what is happening. It looks like, well, this is how our parliament operates, but this is a very steady 
dangerous erosion. And now they are threatening that perhaps we should leave the European Court of Human Rights. They are explaining that that is because they want to deal with the small boats crisis. But if they actually took us out of the European Court of Human Rights, then absolutely another level of protection for British citizens against our government has gone. So this is a really, really dangerous trend. And I have never been political before in my life. And now I feel we have to fight for our democracy. We cannot take it for granted. There is a populist trend fueled by social media, and it is happening in the UK. And we should not be complacent that it could not happen here. It is happening here. You've got a new podcast out on Goal Hanger, which is Gary Lineker's company. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, Disorder, because I think a lot of people will have enjoyed listening to your very lucid arguments that you've made, very clear in your debates. So if they want to hear more, you can find out the Disorder podcast. You're the co-host. Who with? And tell me more about it. Thank you so much. So this is a thoroughly cheerful, uplifting podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to me chat now, I now extend it to the global level, the threats mm. to democracy on a global level, the waves of populism, and how it is that we seem to be in this cycle of electing precisely the wrong kind of leaders to deal with our increasingly complex, interconnected world where there are new challenges new poles of power, China, Russia, malign actors. So it's a thoroughly cheerful topic. However, we do try to end every episode of the podcast with some suggestions about how we can order the disorder. And we've talked about climate change. We talk about migration. We talk about the role of NATO. What lessons can we learn from that? We've just done a bonus episode this week on the conflict in the Middle East. And my co-host is an absolutely wonderful fellow. He is an American living in London. He absolutely loves the UK. I am now an expat living in Washington, D.C. He is Jason Pack, a Middle East expert. And we are establishing a good rapport, good chemistry. And it would be wonderful if people wanted to listen to us. Because if you think the world is seeming a bit mad... It is. <laughs> and we're trying to explain what we can do about it. Brilliant stuff. That's the Disorder podcast with Alexandra Hall Hall and Jason Pack. Get that wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. And you can sometimes read Alexandra in the Byline Times. You can support our work by taking out a subscription to the brilliant monthly newspaper that is the Byline Times, now available on newsstands as well. Take out a subscription at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. This episode was produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham. It's a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. We'll see you next time. Cheers now. Bye-bye. <laughs>